This is episode 179 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Reva Farrawal. She practices prosthodontics, a specialty within dentistry that focuses on full mouth reconstruction. She is also a leading expert on dining health for the elderly. As an accomplished international speaker, lead research investigator, assistant professor, and published author on dental implants and sleep apnea, she is considered a key opinion leader for Dent Spli Serona, the world's largest dental company. With experience gained from dentistry, research, and a former career in the French culinary arts, she developed a company called Taste for Life LLC that provides unique solutions to improve the dining experience for those with dysphagia. With the commercial launch of the product line in December 2019, she is solely focused on creating evidence-based innovative products, addressing the need for a more person-centered approach to dining enjoyment and nutritional health in the presence of eating and swallowing difficulties. She has a passion for education and collaboration across disciplines and is excited to share information on transitional foods to help support treatment of patients in your clinical practice. And I don't think she mentioned in here (laughs) that the name of her company is Savories. So it's www.savoreas.com. That's Savories. And we'll put all of the, the details and she's got a promo code for you guys in the show notes. And now for a quick word from my friend and director of marketing for the MetaSLP Collective, Vince Clark. This is Vince Clark, marketing director for the MetaSLP Collective. Teresa Richard asked me to stop by and say a few words about the MetaSLP Collective and its relation to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. The Swallow Your Pride podcast is designed to be free and easily accessible to the SLPs and SLTs of the world. It doesn't cost the listener anything, and certain decisions were made behind the scenes not to offer CEUs for Swallow Your Pride. We wanted to be able to discuss any topic related to swallowing, swallowing disorders, and the medical SLP world at large. Teresa fully intends to keep the podcast free and hopefully viable and ongoing for a long, long time. You may also notice that Swallow Your Pride advertises products and services at times. That, along with donations through Patreon, are the only ways that this podcast is funded. Also, Teresa only advertises products and services that align with the values of her overall organization. In addition, speakers give freely of their time. There is no financial reimbursement for appearing on Swallow Your Pride. With all of that in mind, we would like to announce that the MetaSLP Collective will join Swallow Your Pride as an advertising sponsor. As you are most likely aware, the MetaSLP Collective is a business, and it does make money. However, it does not fund the Swallow Your Pride podcast. The MetaSLP Collective stands alone and is an extension of what Teresa saw possible once the Swallow Your Pride podcast became so popular. We decided that given Swallow Your Pride's scope and reach to the SLP and SLT world, that we wanted to be an advertiser for ourselves. After all, Swallow Your Pride is one of the most popular SLP-related podcasts in the world recently hitting 2.4 million total downloads. It really makes sense for us, for the viability of the podcast, and for the listener to continue to receive a high-quality, free product. 
We just wanted to put that out to the world in the spirit of transparency to our long-time listeners so they would understand the relationship. In a few moments, you will hear an ad for the Metasopi Collective. We hope you consider joining, and we also hope you will stick around for this week's Swallow Your Pride conversation. So when I first started using social media and the internet for contact with the world of the medical speech language pathologist, I noticed that while there was a lot of potential there, there were also a lot of problems. Like whose information do you trust? Who is an expert? Is what being posted online really evidence-based practice? By answering those questions for myself, I found the answer for some others. That answer has become the Medical SLP Collective. As we all learned last year with COVID, sometimes there is no roadmap or journal article for a specific case or scenario. Using clinical expertise from a variety of settings combined with research and experience, we've cultivated a supportive community that provides education and mentorship to help you get the best results for your patients. Join us May 17th through May 21st for our third Medical SLP Summit. Join us to hear cutting edge information from 20 of our mentors that help to educate our members daily. The summit serves as the grand opening for the Medical SLP Collective open enrollment period, which will begin during the summit. You can sign up for the Medical SLP Summit completely free at www.medslpcollective.com forward slash summit. That's www.medslp.com c-o-l-l-e-c-t-i-v-e dot com forward slash s-u-m-m-i-t and we look forward to seeing you there if you don't need any further convincing and would like to sign up now for the MetaSLP Collective or just check out a little bit more about what it is all about you can go directly to www.metaslpcollective.com forward slash video series that's metaslpcollective.com forward slash video series Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MetaSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Reba. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is um, it's so exciting to be able to be on your podcast. So thank you. Yes. I'm so excited to have this conversation. I know it's going to be a great one, but first, why don't you tell the people a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, so I am a prosthodontist. Uh, that means that I specialize in full mouth reconstruction. 
And I um, have been practicing for many years and I won't tell you how long, but it's been a long time. Um, I graduated from Canada, um, University of Toronto, and I moved to the States um, and did my specialty training in Texas. So fast track forward, um, actually go back a little bit. I was born with a congenital anomaly that made one side of my jaw grow and the other side never grew. So that meant that I couldn't chew on one side of my mouth. And that led to like, essentially my whole childhood was spent at the doctor's office and um, multiple surgeries and interesting approaches that novel things that people were doing at that time kind of pioneering their way through this um, unique condition. And so really that sparked my interest in helping others that had issues with chewing. And um, the psychosocial elements of that when you're a child, you know, imagine a teenager and going through multiple surgeries and being in high school. I mean, it was really tough. But I think at that time, I did get some um, therapy from an SLP. So I, um, you know, speech was an issue. And um, so that that's interesting that now I find myself with this background of full mouth reconstruction and I became a French culinary chef. So after I became a dentist, oh, cool. I, yeah, I love food. Oh, how neat. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I went to Cordon Bleu at the age of 16. And then I actually went to De Brule French culinary school and I would, um, I would practice in the morning in dentistry from seven till noon. And then I would ride my bike to French culinary school and work there until nine at night. And I loved it. And I never knew where it would go. Like, I was like, okay, this is crazy. People were like, well, you could have a dental office and have a restaurant and feed them tons of sugar. And I'm just like, yeah, that's not my plan. (laughs) (laughs) so um but I I essentially became a mom and just finessed the fine art of cooking in under 30 minutes a really nice meal for my kids I mean that's where it went um (laughs) so uh so it wasn't until recently that I I started to learn about SLPs and wonder why is it that I'm a specialist and yet I know nothing about dysphagia. Why is it that I, I worry about functional chewing patterns and TMJ disorders and dental implants? And yet the next thing they do is swallow. And yet we, we don't know anything. So the reason I think I'm here today is because I started to develop food for my patients who had dysphagia who had full mouth reconstruction post head and neck cancer that were struggling with chewing, xerostomia and dysphagia. And it was their cry for help when it came to food that it took me a year sitting on my couch going, isn't anyone gonna do something about this? Isn't anyone gonna help them? And then I finally said, oh, Rava Barrel, I think you have to get off the couch. And um, and do something. So that led. That was seven years ago. I love it. I love it. What a, what a cool story, Rava. That's that's so neat. I, I love that you just you know daytime dentist and moonlighting as a French culinary chef. How amazing! 
Awesome. All right. So yeah, where, where do you want to go? Where do you want to start with, with all this? So what I like to share is that you know, if we're going to talk about what happened, what sparked that innovation of, you know, what sparked that innovative thinking of problem solution fit. Um, I'm sitting there in my practice and um, my patient is describing her lovely teeth that I just made and how she loves to smile. And she's like, it's just too bad. I can't chew with them because I have dysphagia. And so she had recovered from head neck cancer. And I felt so downcast that I had focused on function and perfect chewing patterns. And yet she can't apply the new teeth that she has to function because of dysphagia. So then what I did was I discovered, does this just have to do with Jan? Is this just Jan's issue? Or do many people have this issue? And I went to conferences, uh, the Oregon Speech and Hearing Association conference, and I handed out surveys to SLPs. And I asked them what they thought about the food choices for their patients. What do they think was missing? What do they think about the new generation of adults? And my focus was adults initially because of my patient base being largely adults. And and then I was getting all these responses like, there's a problem. You know, they don't like the foods that they have. They don't like the textures that they have. There isn't cultural diversity. And so I went, oh, um, and then I went to geriatric society conferences and spoke to geriatricians and RNs, and I asked the same questions, and they were saying the same thing. So, you know, when 80% of people are saying there's a problem and <laughs> no one's fixing it, I was like, well, what about these large companies? How come they're not, you know, why are we giving shake supplements all the time? And why aren't we diversifying from chocolate, strawberry, vanilla? Like, what, what's going on? And so, so I realized that, that really innovation hadn't happened in this area. So I looked at what was missing and it's really texture and cravings that I was going after. So I went to support groups and I spoke to head and neck cancer survivors about what do you crave? And the interesting thing that I found was when they're early in their treatment or their um, their evolved treatments, and they're not in the acute phase, but weeks after the acute phase, they are trying to get back to the way they used to be with their diet. They are just so feeling that craving and that loss. And so they're blending their pizza, they're trying to get the flavors and they're missing out on the texture. But if they can get the aroma, they can get the flavor of what they experienced, then, then they're trying to satiate their food memory. And it's really with the more seasoned head and neck cancer patients that were, would be in the support groups that would tell the newer patients or people on this in the support group, you know, you need to resign yourself. Stop trying so hard. Just resign yourself that things will be different. You won't get exactly what you had before. You will get some semblance of it. So start to enjoy your ice cream, you know, three times a day. Cause that's, you know, that's kind of, and on now my favorite snack is ice cream. I used to love pretzels. I used to love chips and crackers. Now it's ice cream. And I thought to myself, of course, as a dentist, I'm like, 
ice cream, but you know, I'm thinking high sugar, sure there's protein in it from the dairy, but there's no diversity. And we as humans love diversity in our food choices. If we have too much diversity, it gets confusing, but if it's too narrow, it affects us, affects us emotionally. So really what I thought was the, the sweet spot for a patient is if you identify where they are with their food cravings and, and could we create something early on to help them support them during this really incredible journey that they're going through and make them not feel so much of a loss. You know, it's that loss, the psychosocial loss, the emotional loss, the, the replacement of joy with food, with fear and embarrassment and frustration. That's where I was wanting to go. So then came the beauty of transitional foods, because here is something that was created, a nomenclature that was created by ITZY to describe foods that transition from a solid to a liquid um, that go from one state to the next state in the mouth. And here I was trying to create crispy, crunchy, but safety. And that's really what transitional foods is described as being. And so I started to innovate transitional foods. And I created the first in the world crisp that dissolves instantly in the mouth to puree. So I took the IDSI category that went from, if you look at the inverted pyramid, transitional foods go from seven to five. And I said, well, what if I can go to four? You know, and so that was really the true innovation. And so I created crisps that didn't have sugar in them because that was a big thing that I noticed. I went and photographed food carts in nursing homes and long-term care facilities and SNFs. And I just basically said, wait a minute here, we have applesauce, we have pudding, you know, we have cottage cheese. If you're a diabetic and with dysphagia, well, you know, the choice is even narrow further. But it's the same thing over and over and over and over again. And it all has the same flavor profile. So what I said was we're missing savory. You know, if they went from pretzels and crackers and chips, and now it's applesauce. That's a big shift for the palate. And so I said, well, I'm going to make things without sugar. I'm going to make them gluten-free. I'm going to make them, you know, healthy. So I include vegetables in the crisps, but make them so pleasurable and delightful that it's like this balance between texture and flavor and nutrition. Um, and they, don't feel like they're eating their peas, but they are, you know, they, they don't feel like they're eating pureed carrots, but they are. So, so that's kind of, uh, that's kind of where I went with transitional foods. Are you trying to convince your administration to invest in fees or video strobe equipment? Or are you thinking about going out on your own to start your own private practice? Being able to calculate return on investment, doing a cost comparison, and presenting your findings in a professional way will be very important and is not everyone's strong suit. PatCon Medical is offering a webinar series specifically for SLPs to learn how to do all that. You will learn step-by-step step and you will get all the tools needed. The best thing? It's completely free. Visit patconmedical.com forward slash webinar to sign up. That's so cool, Reba. That's that's just really cool. Um, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, I guess, 
your your experience with creating these foods. Obviously, you're a chef, so you're used to creation. But I would just love to know, you know, did you have to do research on the specific ingredients to use? Or, you know, I loved we had um, John Hollihan, the creator of Simply Thick on, and he talked about kind of how he came to this recipe that, you know, worked for thickening the foods. And I would just love to hear, I'm kind of enamored with the food science background of it all. Yes, so. um, you and me both. I love food science and, um, and I love texture studies, believe, you, believe, believe it or not, it is a discipline in food science. And so what uh, inspired me was aquafaba. And aquafaba is the liquid in your can of chickpeas or beans. Huh. Okay. And in the vegan world, if you want to make a vegan mayonnaise or you want to make a vegan meringue, you whip up the liquid in a can of beans and it goes to stiff peaks and you can make it into different things. Right. Wow. I thought you were just supposed to throw that stuff out. I know. Well, I still throw out the certain beans, like black beans. I don't like the okay. flavor of it, but, okay, okay. But, <laughs> but yeah, it goes down the sink, but yeah, it's just crazy. Cause it has this, um, these qualities to it that are really unique. Um, Interesting. so yeah, so I, I kind of went, what can I do with aquafaba? And so the real difference I think in my journey compared to other journeys with food is I knew the problem affected multiple people. It was the people with dysphagia that were experiencing the problem, but the SLPs are hearing about the problem and look at texture in a different way than a food scientist would, right? They, I would watch them and how they, um, how they kind of test the food in their mouth. And also the questions that they ask are very different than a dietitian. Now, a dietitian is interested in the food that we provide people with for dysphagia because they are trying to prevent malnutrition. They are looking at their patients from a different lens. And so I, for two years, would bring together food scientists people with dysphagia, um, dietitians, and SLPs in a room. And we would innovate together. The food scientists and I would create the food prototypes and they would trial the food and they would tell us what they thought of the texture, what they thought of the taste, what they thought of the nutritional profile. Because the, the, the truth is, is if I was making a food for the Saturday market, it would be so easy because there I would just focus on flavor, right? And appearance and I'm done, you know, done. So, but here you're in the healthcare space and there are specific requirements needed to be fulfilled. And the person at the end of the day has to enjoy the food that they're eating. And I think that's the part that was missing. I really distilled it down to when you are sick, when you're not sick, your choices are based on nutritional choices, but emotional choices. You know, our food identity is really what we bring to the table, so to speak, as to why we choose the foods that we do. Um, it's culturally based. It's based on our experiences as a child, you know, what we enjoyed eating. It's based on our love for cooking. You know, it's based on our environment. 
And um, our food, our food uh, gurus, if you will, is like the Food Network, um, our, our favorite cookbook. And then when you have dysphagia, it becomes pretty much your SLP, your dietitian, your nurse, your doctor is telling you what you need to eat. And we go from the reasons we choose the food, usually emotionally based and some nutritional basis to mostly nutritionally based and very little emotional component. And so the idea of this transitional food, as I was sitting there with these people that had dysphagia that were helping me and volunteering their support because they wanted change, it was really trying to focus on the emotional piece. The dietitian was there to take care of the nutritional piece. But if I could get the win with them having something that crunches and dissolves in their mouth and they're using their teeth and they're feeling the connection of that crunch in their mouth, the audition, the, the sound of that crunch, the flavor that escapes from food when it actually crunches in the mouth or dissolves in the mouth and not the puree, which lacks flavor because it's not dissolving in the mouth. Then that was, that was really the win for me. So so yeah, so it took it took a couple of years to bring that together, and then we started to do clinical research studies and uh, publish on the data. And it was uh, we recently actually the article just came out in Dysphagia of our first clinical study looking at um, the IDSI criteria for transitional foods and how transitional foods in the mar on the market as well as savories compare. Awesome. All right, I want to hold that thought, but I do want to go. I want to backtrack a tiny bit. I, I loved every word that you just said about keeping in mind the psychosocial effect that all this has on patients. And I feel like, you know, that's something I'm so passionate about in, in my career and when I was treating clinically and still just in my education that I do. I feel like so many times as medical professionals, you know, whether it's SLPs or doctors or dentists, it, it's like we we get so laser focused on what we can fix. And sometimes we just don't ask the patient, what is that much more important to you? You know, and, 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 you know, for you, you created these brand new, shiny, new, beautiful teeth, but they weren't able to be functionally used. And so for that patient, it, they might've just been, you know, devastated about that. So I, to me, it means a lot that you brought this point to the forefront because I think as medical professionals, it's something that we, we don't consider as much as we should. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I think that it's part like we are, we, we, we watch the clock all day, right? And so you have your checklist that you need to get through. And at the end of the day, you're almost afraid of that emotional conversation because it can be long, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you don't want to cut them off because you're that, you know, that's not fair. So our system is not created to really dive deep into their, their emotional journey with their condition. And that goes honestly, for parents of children with dysphagia or with, with pediatric feeding disorders, which is a larger and more encompassing condition, but, you know, with, with families and people with dysphagia in the adult population. So I think, you know, now we're slowly getting into that caregiver burden conversation and we're kind of bringing that to light with dysphagia. But 
if I can speak to the psychosocial elements that really I focused on was the dining experience and the and I called it dining health because I feel that you know what was happening I focused a lot with ALS right and so I would talk to them and it was so heart-wrenching to hear that the the wife of say the husband that had ALS would eat she would go to they had a back room where the washing machine dryer was to eat her food because she didn't want to eat in front of her husband because she knew he was suffering with the modified texture diet of what he had to eat and so it was it was really hearing these stories of that social disconnect food was intended and it's also very culturally diverse how we connect to food right and what what our diets are in the american tradition of you know this uh, pureed diets like it's largely stripped of any cultural identity you know the food is if you go to a hospital the food lacks cultural identity so you look at this person that has been stripped of the cultural elements the textural elements and it is actually de-identified for them as food and what does that do to that person because now they're eating like i said before for nutrition they're being told to eat their food but that volition that desire the want to eat is gone right and how and why why is it that they become non-compliant well that's exactly why they become non-compliant right it's also the caregiver burden of preparation but it has a lot to do with the desire to eat and so we really need to attack that issue and it is a big it is a big problem like the psychosocial is you know it's not only you know going to a restaurant and looking at the menu and saying well i'm going to fake eat because i want to be with my friends but i can't eat anything here that's i mean part of why i made the food all shelf stable and portable because i really wanted them to have options when they were out in public but it's it's also to do with the behavior changes that you see with dementia or with some of these conditions when the eating patterns change that is a psychosocial shift right so you might actually go from eating breakfast lunch dinner as as we are trained to do in the US and and you now eat very small portions of food and you're eating more frequently and you might be grazing you might forget to continue to eat get up from the table walk around and you know lose out on the nutritional components of food you you might actually have an inability to eat with utensils you might be eating more with your fingers now and we have to look at these psychosocial changes how that's impacting the caregiver um how you want them to continue to eat on their own and the autonomy of self feeding yourself is is an important principle for humans to feel empowered and whether you're a child or whether you're an adult it is and it is a milestone that you lose or that you gain right and so it to me i wanted to create finger foods because i thought that's universal i mean wherever you are you can you go that to that point is the last point where you can eat alone right yeah. and yeah. so i looked at finger food options and there really weren't any that were that were nutritious 
that weren't empty calories, that actually had the texture modification that allowed someone who is a six, five or four by Izzy to continue to eat. And, um, and so that's, um, that honestly was a big component. And if I look at also the, I created dips, right? Cause I just wanted to increase the nutritional component and lubrication and flavor. We look at why we want to eat. That is a, that's a psychological, that's a big conversation. But if you look at someone with dementia and when they look at the food on the plate, if you create color contrast, it's more interesting to the eye. That's what dips do, right? So they did studies. Um, Puyette did a study and Kimura did another study where they introduced dips with finger foods and they showed that people with dementia would eat more and they had more food enjoyment when they had the finger food with a dip. They thought it had to do with the sensory pleasure from the visual of the color contrast, but also the sensory of the taste contrast. And one cannot get away from the, from the actual, I call it like, it's like this um, pattern of you grab a food, you put it in the dip and you put it in your mouth. And it is a rhythmic pattern. And I've seen it in memory care facilities with my products that they just you know, they eat more because they can develop that pattern. They have the oral preparatory phase um, improved because they're self-feeding. They're guiding how much dip they want to put on that crisp. And so they're preparing themselves for their swallow. And so it was just, it's just so interesting how you mix the psychosocial with the physiological to get the response that you want. And if you just focus on one, you're not going to get, you know, that, that, that better outcome. Yeah. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Yeah. I don't know. I have a son with special needs also. I don't know if you know that, but he's, that's the sort of where we're stuck in is this transitional food space right now. But you know, the kind of the sad thing is, is we've never been out to eat as a family before because there's just not really anything that he can eat that he would want to eat when everybody else is eating all different things. You know, so this is, it's fascinating. This is, I just love that you put so much thought into this, this psychosocial dynamic behind everything. And really, like you said, dining health, how important it is for families to eat together, whether it's, you know, cultural or just, you know, something that's really personally important to them. So. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I think that what, uh, what condition does your son have? Um, he, he just has a rare chromosomal abnormality, just has just so much oral motor weakness really. So. Okay. Um, the pediatric SLPs that are you, that are, um, I have professional kits, so they're trying it in their practice. Actually, I, but, but essentially what they're showing is that it is, they, there's less oral residue with this transitional food and it's actually helping them therapeutically. So helping them form the food bolus. And um, yeah, I, just yesterday I got a, an email from an SLP who said that texture versions, they're seeing great results with texture versions in their population. Oh, wow. So I think that, um, if we just kind of, I think you asked me what is a really great article that that I like. Um, 
if if your audience wants to read um, an article by Awadala, and he's the title of it is kind of catchy. It's chew on this. And so what was really interesting was she looked at the transitional foods available on the market first finger foods. Okay. And largely first finger foods are transitional foods. And I talked to pediatric SLPs. Well, what are you giving your patients when you're doing food trials and I'm in therapy? And, and so they would tell me puffs and largely uh, Chester's or Gerber or, you know, and so I, I looked at this article and I'm like, my goodness, this article is amazing. They actually tested all of these transitional foods and they looked to see how quickly they dissolved in the mouth. And what was interesting was they couldn't do it with children, but they had adults raise their hand when they felt the product start to dissolve and raise their hand again when it was fully dissolved in their mouth. And it was really amazing that some of these transitional foods really didn't dissolve. You know, they didn't fall under the AAP classification of what a first finger food should be. And yet they're marketed as first finger foods and some trans foods that are called transitional. And it's not by the itsy definition, but it is, you know, they don't transition in the mouth. Um, so it's, it's really important, I think, for parents like yourself, but you're also an SLP. So you're kind of uniquely qualified to, um, to actually assess the oral behavior of transitional foods, because no matter what ITSY says, and, you know, I, I have this kind of like definition of the ITSY classical definition of how do you test a transitional food using the fork pressure test. And, and what I, what I know is that the oral environment as a dentist, I know the oral environment inside and out. And I know that it's very different from benchtop testing. And when you put in further qualifiers of someone with xerostomia or hypersalivation or someone with poor oral motor coordination, how, how is that food actually behaving in the mouth? You know, if you have dysphagia, how is that food behaving in your mouth as well um, as someone who is healthy? And so I looked at the temperature of saliva and it's different. The pH of saliva is different than water. So that's, that's when I created a study that I recently published um, in dysphagia, which actually goes through um, transitional foods and what happens in the mouth and testing, pork pressure testing that food afterwards to see how far it truly transitioned. And what was remarkable is that Foods that were defined as transitional foods were not dissolving in the mouth at a speed that an AP speed in the mouth that was actually what occurs. You know, like we say the average is 12. It can be like three to 12 seconds in the mouth. I mean, it can be much longer than that. But the ITZY test is one minute in water. One minute. That is a long time. So, um, so, you know, we need the food to transition faster, bottom line. So with a child, you want to put the transitional food in their mouth and then you want to see, does that speed of transition of that particular food in that oral environment work? So we need to get more person-centered with our transitional food. 
we need to look at the oral behavior and the oral environment to know whether that transitional food is going to be a success for that patient to avoid texture aversions. Because once a child has a bad experience with the transitional food, they're not going to do that food again. So, you know, we have to we have to be careful. I mean, it has to be really assessed by an SLP and determined whether this is a safe food. And the SLP needs to have more choices of transitional foods that offer different transition rates for that patient. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit more, talk a little bit more about that study that you did, Reva. I'd love to hear, um, yeah, some more specifics about it. Yeah. Um, so the study was conducted at the Food Innovation Center. Um, there, was 30, there were 30 participants in the study. Uh, some of the participants had dysphagia as it related to head and neck cancer or Parkinson's disease. And some of them, uh, the majority didn't. As some, of the patient, some of the participants had xerostomia. And, but all of the participants were adults over the age of 50. And so what we did was we had some de-identified samples of transitional foods. We had baby mum mum. We had shrimp chips. We had something called the eat bar. We had um, savories, crisps. And then we did a savories crisp with the dip. And so we put these plates in front of the patients and there was examiners that were trained and cross-trained with each other to be able to conduct the food pressure test. And we actually, every participant had an IOP. So what we did was we measured the tongue, the tongue pressure, and we wanted them all to be calibrated to use the same tongue pressure on the transitional food that was a 17 kilopascals of tongue pressure that is known to be the approximate, you know, fork pressure test when you get the blanching of your thumbnail. And so we tried to get people to understand what is a modest tongue pressure, because that's not a strong tongue pressure. That's just a very modest tongue pressure. And we um, so then what, what happened was um, a randomized order of these samples. They would put the food in their mouth. And this is because I'm a crazy dentist. I would have them put the food in their mouth for five seconds with no tongue pressure, five seconds with tongue pressure, 12 seconds with tongue pressure, and then 12 seconds with a, a pulsing tongue pressure. And then they would, each time, so five seconds, they would spit, expectorate. So they would spit it out onto the plate. We would photograph it and um, the examiner would fork pressure test it. Then of course, the five seconds with tongue pressure, yada, yada. So it would just be like the whole um, series on that transitional food. Then you move to the next transitional food and you do it on that one. And so what we determined was using the variables of time and pressure, what was the transition of these transitional foods? And so the results were that transitional foods transition in, there was wide disparity. There was statistically significant difference in how foods transition in the mouth. If you looked at um, savories, savories transitioned very quickly in the mouth and went down to, you know, pass the fork pressure test 100% of the time. But if you looked at the baby mum mum, that really didn't transition that well. 
and Crazy. and yeah. the shrimp chips as well. And what was interesting was looking at people with dysphagia and dry mouth and how these foods transition. The second part of the study was we actually took all those transitional foods, 1.5 centimeters by 1.5 centimeters. We did the traditional ITSI test and we saw what the results were on bench top. And for sure, the, the fork pressure test was more positive on bench top than it was in the mouth for many of the transitional foods. So, you know, that led to the conclusion that we need to look at the oral environment and we look, need to look at oral conditions when we're assessing transition. So we can do the bench top test, but I think that you actually have to look at the patient as well. Yeah. So, so fascinating, Ray. I recorded a podcast yesterday, actually, and I was talking about there was a specific feeding therapist that my son had that she was probably the best one we've ever had for him. But what was interesting was she you know, gave me just a list of foods, you know, to try with him. You know, she gave me brands. There was a bunch of just foods, even from Trader Joe's that he did so well with that, you know, he was able to crunch, but just, you know, transition very well. And, but there was one, and I can't remember the brand of it, um, but she said, you know, this is a really good brand too. I think I had to go to Target or something. It was like $9 for just like a little thing of crisps. But anyways, I got home and I gave them to him and they were like so hard And she was mortified when she came over and then, you know, she read the back and it says like, you know, new, you know, reinvented formula or whatever. And the new formula that they did, I would not classify this as anything sort of safe for, you know, toddlers or children with, you know, chewing difficulties and transitional food. So it's like, you know, I understand these companies are trying to market to a specific population, but then they go and make these formula changes and it takes them completely out of the market. So you know, I really appreciate that you tested different brands and, you know, brought to light, you know, kind of the, the similarities and differences between them. Well, you know, if we can thank you. And like one thing is crystal clear to me is that these transitional foods by Awadala's report, sometimes they're not even safe for healthy, you know, typically developing children you know, if someone has a PFD, that is like, you know, and we still are offering these transitional foods because there are no other choices. And what I'm kind of proud of is the fact that this transitional food is created for people, is specifically created for people with dysphagia, for people with pediatric feeding disorder. And because of that specificity and taking into account the nutritional elements as well as the psychosocial elements, what what we're doing is we're bringing everyone to have a seat at the table because the whole idea is that psychosocial piece where you can use a food therapeutically, you can use a food that helps them move through their milestones, but that you and I would like to eat. So, you know, one lady in a support group said, Now, when I go to a party, when everything opens up, I can be the one bringing snacks to the party. The hostess does not, and the host does not have to cater the food to me. I'm actually bringing, and that's a huge shift, right? Mm -hmm. For, for someone. So, so yeah, thank you. I I think that, I think that maybe I'm, you know, I, I really wanted to create a shift in what's available, but I hope that other companies start to look at 
TFD, they look at dysphagia and realize that there's a huge market of people that are isolated because of their food choices and are developing food aversions because of their food choices. And, and yet we can make the food delightful for everybody. Yep. Yep. All right. I love this conversation, Rayla. This is, this is awesome. Any, anything else you want to cover? I think we pretty much covered everything. I, yeah, I think if you're, uh, listeners actually want to have some samples, I put a link or I gave you some information about where they can go to get samples. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. We'll stick that in the show notes. Yeah. I think, I think this was awesome, Rave. I think to me, this is like just the most perfect marriage of interprofessional collaboration and, you know, you bringing what you know, and, and SLPs bringing what we know and, you know, we, we have such a joint passion for helping these patients in, in a myriad of ways. So thank you so much for creating this product, sharing your knowledge, sharing it with us. Um, I, I, I promise we'll do good with it. So, um, yeah, well, yeah, I'm excited to check it out too. I hope, and I'm definitely going to order a kit. And- I, was, I was just going to say, I mean, give me your address, email me your address and I'll send some samples out to you okay, for your awesome. son and see what he thinks. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Well, thank you yeah, so much. And share it with your therapist too. Yeah. yeah, I will. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Reva. This was great. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're welcome. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye, Teresa. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.